Hi there, and welcome to Manningham Christian Centre's Sermon of the Week. I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm the lead pastor here. My prayer for you is that as you listen, you encounter God, and find this message practically helpful. It would mean a lot to us if you were able to rate and subscribe. This not only lets us know how we can serve you better, but also spreads the message to those who need to hear it. Hey, thanks so much again, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. Well, so I'm going to dive into um, my message that I think Jesus wants to uh, just encourage you with. Um, <clears throat> it's a story that I think you're very familiar with. If you're watching online, which camera is, am, am I looking at that's watching online? All of them. I can see the green iPad. Then... So you just have, so if you're online, you are sitting right above a green iPad, just like, and I have no idea what that's for, just like, but it's there. Um, so a passage that I think, a story that I think you're very familiar with is uh, Jesus turning the water into wine. And so I'm going to read the passage to you, and then we'll talk about it. It's uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 in John's Gospel. We read this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw uh, some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the, the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it's like this is the beginning, okay? This is the very early stages of Jesus' public ministry. At this point, as far as John is writing, he hasn't even begun his miraculous signs yet. This is going to be the first miraculous sign. Probably just something just to be aware of then is that when Jesus does a miracle, it's not just a miracle, it's a miracle that points to something that's even more profoundly true. So, and John goes out of his way to show you what those miracles are, are, are the, deeper, the deeper lesson that's in the miracle. So Jesus loves 
to open blind eyes. But that's because he's, he is the light of the world. So to emphasise the fact that he's the light, then he opens eyes. Jesus is the resurrection. And so, so where does he introduce that thought? He introduces that thought with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He's the bread of life. And where does he introduce that thought? Well, that's in the feeding of the 5,000 where a couple little loaves of bread just become, <clears throat> yeah, just like an amazing amount of bread. And it's because he is the bread. So, you know, there's just a, a great little, I suppose, a devotional thought that any of us could engage in and just to think of any miracle and just think, so what is... What, what does the miracle itself say about Jesus? It's not just that he's a miracle worker, but there are deeper, deeper things. It's like, there's always, it's like an onion. There's always another layer, you know, that you can go deeper and deeper into the heart of what God is about. <coughs> so in this one here, this is the first. It's early in the piece. And so it started off saying that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I think it's just amazing that Jesus' first miracle happens at a wedding. You know, I don't think we realise this enough uh, in modern Western Christianity. Just how much God is interested in family. He doesn't just call you to join a church. Church was meant to be family. Like, I mean, when you gave your heart to Jesus, and if you haven't given your heart and you're watching online, you haven't given your heart to Jesus, today is your day. And you will discover that God himself can be your father. And, but here's the thing. We have such a personalised view of faith. My, it's my faith. It's, you know, it's my devotion. It's my prayers. And... We don't understand that the person sitting right beside us, they're in the same relationship with, with God as we are. He's my father, but he's your father, and that means he's our father. And in fact, that's how Jesus said to pray, wasn't it? He said, our father. Like, I can't pray that prayer, our father in heaven. I can't pray that prayer unless I'm with you. Because if I'm just on my own all the time, then it's my father. And he, Jesus never wanted us to pray, my father, because we had to see ourselves linking arms with each other and being family together. So I just think it's very significant that the first miracle he does is actually at a wedding because there's probably nothing that is more family than a wedding. It's the beginning of a new family and two families are coming together because the two families are, are merging together and so now the family is growing and expanding, um, you know. So I just got introduced to a couple of you guys, uh, your, uh, your, ex your two new daughters, you know. It's just like the families just grow. And uh, it's really exciting. You have to understand, this is an ancient Middle Eastern world. They don't do family like we do. Family is tribal for these people. Family is not mum, dad and the kids. Family is mum, dad and the kids, both sets of grandparents, all the aunts and uncles and their kids and their, relation, their, their marriages 
And let's just and in this world, Cana of Galilee is a small village. So it's not like Melbourne, you know, with millions of people. Uh, Cana of Galilee has just got hundreds of people in it. It's a little village. So the whole village sees itself as family. And if ever you've had had the joy of living in a little community, a small country town, then you'll understand that if there's a celebration in that home, we're all going to celebrate because everybody knows everybody, you know. Um, and so in this wedding here in Cana of Galilee, there would have been hundreds of people there. So it's not kind of like, uh, now I don't, like there's Italians here. Are there any Greeks here? Oh, we're like, where are you guys from? What's your background? South African. Okay, well, I know this is true for South African. Like, you guys, it's just like uncle is as much your dad and he will, he will discipline you too, just like your dad. <laughs> I know a lot of South Africans, just like. Um, so in this particular setting, the whole village is part of the wedding. It's part of the celebration and it's not like an Australian wedding, okay? This is a celebration that is going to take days. So they're not having a half hour service and then the reception, okay? That's not going to happen. The reception is going to be the better part of a week long. And so you can imagine if you've got a few hundred people coming together, not just the immediate family, but if you've got a few hundred people coming to, and I'm sorry, I know a lot of Italians and Italians certainly have hundreds of people at the wedding. It's just like every other, if they're even vaguely related, then they come. Just like, even if you haven't seen them for 10 years, they come, you know, just like, uh, and just as so long as they give a good gift and pin it on the bride's dress, you know, just, um, okay. Here we are, hundreds of people, a three to five day reception. You imagine the amount of food that's going to be eaten. You imagine the amount of drinks that are there, hundreds of people. And this is Middle East, they're gonna have wine there. So imagine the quantity of alcohol that they started that celebration with. It is everywhere. Okay, so let's just keep all of that in mind because that's all going to be the background to this story. It's not, it's not going to be an Anglo wedding. Got it. All right. And the mother of Jesus was there. That was verse 1. And it said something that I'm not sure I myself, if I was writing the story... I'm not sure I would have put it like this. It says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. If I was writing this story, if I was John, this is probably how I would have written it. I would have probably said, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there along with Jesus and his disciples. I would have just, like, why did he go out of his way 
to say, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited. And I don't know if John was thinking this at the time, but clearly the Holy Spirit in him was thinking of it. We need to understand that Jesus tends to move where Jesus is invited. And it's gone out of his way to say, and Jesus was invited. They wanted him to be there. Time to make space in your life for Jesus. Time to invite him and make room for him in your family, in your marriage, in your finances, just like in, just in your devotion, everything. Time to make room for him. Invite him. Don't try and go through the circumstances of life and have a little off-handed prayer at the end of it, just like, but invite him to be there every step of the way. Okay, now that doesn't mean that Jesus never moves where he's not invited. That's clearly, that's, you know, where people come to him for healing, they all get healed. But he doesn't always go to them. On occasion he does. There'll be, there'll be uh, the cripple at, uh, at the pool of Bethesda, you know. Um, he will go to him, but he doesn't go to the cripple who's laid out at the gate beautiful. Like he, he walks past that guy many, many, many times. That guy was in his 40s and he was crippled from birth and they used to lay him every day at the gate beautiful at the temple to, to beg for, for money. Jesus walked past him many, many times, did not go to him. That was for another day. And uh, so on occasion you will see Jesus initiating the miracle, but mostly... People have come to him and people have initiated. In other words, don't sit there and say, if God wants to heal me, he can. Invite him. Ask him. Invite him to do the miracle. Okay. So um, so we get to verse 3. And when they ran out of wine. Okay, this is a tragedy. They ran out of wine. It's just like... <laughs> Strike, we didn't bring enough. How much did they have there? I have no idea. But with couple of, with two, three, four hundred people there, there were gallons that were there. All right. So you can just try and picture the scene. Now it's not a, not Australia where you're gonna have all your, your leftover bottles. You're gonna have wine skins. The wine skins are going to you know, hold a gallon or, or, or so. The bigger ones might even be bigger than that. But they're going to be everywhere. There's just empty wineskins all over the place. Okay, Mary sees that there's a problem. And she basically says, this is not okay. And maybe it's something that the grandmother kind of images uh, women just do. They just take charge, <laughs> you know. It's just like we're like this is not right. They've like so she comes to Jesus. Look, just on that one, she comes to Jesus. So often, when we run out of things, when you know we run out, then we just make do. And we just, we, we just live in lack rather than actually just saying, this is not right, 
I'm going to make this a point of prayer. I'm going to bring my need to Jesus rather than just toughing it out. I couldn't tell you how many people I've ministered to over the year, years uh, who have just suffered silently. You know, they've, they've, they've got their war wounds. You know, they've, they've got their arthritis or, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, physical issues or, or financial issues. And they just kind of like just, well, you know, they, they just soldier on. You know, and like good on them for being tough, but let's let's bring our needs to Jesus. Okay, so she does this, and she gets the response that none of us understand. So Jesus says, "Woman, like I just kind of stop and think about that. Like, what, what, what?" Like your boy is back there, I can't see him, he's hiding behind that dark screen. But what if you said to him, like, time to clean your room, and he just said, woman? (laughs) (laughs) Just like, I know you well enough that I think that would be a scary thing to say. I wonder that we don't have a particularly good enough relationship with Jesus that we hear him talk to us like that on occasion. Where he just basically, he all but discounts her. He says, woman, what is your concern to do with me? Like what would you do if Jesus spoke like that to you? Jesus, I'm suffering here. Woman, What is your concern to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, Okay, sorry. (laughs) So she just ignores him. Like, where did that come from? That kind of relationship, you know? we just end up making do. We endure hardship. We assume that God is teaching us a lesson. We pray and we get, we get okay, it, in, our, in our real world, okay, and I'm just going to talk like real world right now. We typically, in our devotion, we don't hear Jesus say, woman or man, what is your concern to do with me? We typically don't hear him talk like that because I think we basically... We have a belief that God doesn't talk like that to people. So we don't hear it when he does. But th- so this is, what it he- this is what it feels like in our experience. We pray to him about something and we get this response from heaven. Nothing. So we pray again. And what response do we get? nothing if you like most Christians that I know me included you'll pray the third time and when you get the nothing response you think to yourself well maybe God's teaching me a lesson you're going to reinterpret everything now maybe this isn't for me 
Well, maybe God wants to heal that person, but he doesn't want to heal me. Or maybe God wants to bless that family, but he doesn't want to bless my family. Or maybe God wants to save that person, but he doesn't want to save this person in my family. You know, just like we reinterpret everything. Or maybe God's trying to teach me a lesson. I've, I've discovered something. God is really, really clever. He is a good teacher. If he, is, he never tries to teach you a lesson. He teaches you. If you are asking the question, I think, is God maybe trying to teach me something? If that's the question you're coming up with, I guarantee he is not trying to teach you anything. Because if he was teaching you something, you would know, one, that he's teaching you, and you would know, two, what it is that he's teaching you, because he's a good teacher. So if you're asking the question, maybe God is trying to teach me something, I'll tell you right now, he's not. You're in exactly the situation that Mary is in right here. What happens then is that we end up, we, we, we've, we've been praying about this thing, this, this ailment, this condition, this thing of lack in our life, and we don't get the answer that that we're hoping for from heaven even though we found bible verses in there and promises that say that we ought to be able to have this so what we end up doing is we develop a theology that accommodates for powerlessness we develop oh well i oh, will no well, look there's job and so so we just we develop theologies that accommodate and and accept lack in our life and it robs us of faith and it's simply because we we don't know how to deal with silence from heaven we take it as a rejection and so we take it that i'm doing something wrong rather than taking mary's uh obvious example because she did something really radical. She took it to Jesus and then expected that there would be an answer. Even when she gets heaven's woman, what is, the, is your concern to do with me? She's, I'll put it in Christian language right now. She's just basically answering one question. Is this, whatever it is that I'm facing, is that something that's in heaven? I'm suffering cancer. Is there cancer in heaven? No. Okay, that's it. Because Jesus told us to pray, your, will, your kingdom come, your will, be, your will be done in earth just like it is in heaven. So in other words, God's will is that you would pray that however it happens in heaven, that's how it should happen here. Like, you, you know, that there would be answers to need, that there wouldn't be lack, you know. Is there poverty in heaven? No, there's not. So there ought not to be poverty here. That's, that's all we need is to push through and, and start to be like Mary and just expect that there will be a miraculous outcome. It's radical. Because here's the thing, maybe like this story, maybe like this story, the difference in this wedding 
where they've run out of wine, there is one thing that's different in this occasion than if there was a wedding down in the other town at the same time, let's just pretend, and let's just pretend that they've run out of wine too at the same time. Let's just pretend that there were two villages, both of them have got a wedding and both of them have run out of wine. It's just like, okay, what's the difference with this one here? Is that there is a son in the wedding. There is a son there. And maybe the fact that you are in relationship with the Father, maybe the difference in your circumstance is that you're there. Okay, so, um, so man, every man in this room, you are a son. You are a son. You have a seat at the table. Every woman in this room, guess what? You, just like the men in the room, you got adopted as sons. Now, that's not a sexist thing and there's not anything to do with gender fluidity or anything like that. You get adopted as sons because in the biblical culture, it's only the men who have authority. It's only the men who have a seat at the table. And so God the Father adopts you as a son just to say to you as women, whatever your culture is, it's irrelevant. You get to sit at my table. You get to have authority along with every other person in this room. Maybe the fact that you're facing this issue or that issue in your family and amongst the people that you love, uh, the people that you work with, your street, your community, whatever it is, maybe the difference is that you are there. Just like the difference in this story is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there as a son. Okay, he's a person who carries the very presence, DNA, culture, atmosphere of heaven into this wedding. He is going to make the difference because he's there. And maybe, just maybe, you are in the situation you're in because God intends, he has sent you, he has delegated you to go into that situation because you have authority as a son. And you're there to bring heaven into it. Maybe that's what God is doing through you in your circumstance. Okay. Verse 5, Mary just ignored. Here's the silence of heaven. Great. This is going to be terrific. What we read here in verse 5 are the last recorded words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We see her words a lot associated with uh, the birth. You know, we, we have all sorts of language from her when, when the angel talks to her and, and, you know, she glorifies God and, you know, and when she, she goes and sees Elizabeth, you know, and, you know, just like and there's interaction there, you, you, you'll see a lot of Mary's language. But the last time you actually see her talking like, and hear her words, it's this time here. And what does she say? Whatever he says, just do it. Now, I know that Mary, amongst global Christianity, Mary is a big person. Like, I mean, highly revered, uh, like more revered amongst the Catholics than amongst the Protestants, but like 
maybe we actually would do well to listen to her because the last word she ever says is found in verse 5. Whatever he says to you, do it. I reckon, uh, I reckon that's good advice. Whatever he says to you, do it. <clears throat> now there was set there in verse 6, six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So let's just say they were all 20 because it's going to be mixed up and who knows if this, it, well this is New King James so who knows how close it is to an American gallon or an imperial gallon and let's, like, like there's a lot. <clears throat> there's at least 120 gallons these pots will contain. And Jesus wants them, the, the servants to fill them with water. A couple of things you need to know. Firstly, I just said before, there are a ton of wineskins that are empty. Why doesn't he tell them to fill them up with water? He's, he wants these water pots filled up with water. You need to understand a couple of things. This is, it goes out of its way to say, after the manner of purification of the Jews. So now the Jews are not like Westerners that, you know, your mum might say, go and wash your hands before you eat. Like they will wash their hands, but it's a religious duty. It's just like they are, they're ceremonially, for themselves, they're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean if they don't wash their hands. So let's put it in language that I think we'll understand a bit better. These pots are filled with holy water. They're not just filled with water. They're, f they're filled with consecrated water. Guess what? If you put anything else in those pots, the pot now is ceremonially unclean. Jesus is going to do something that's going to destroy the pots. He's going to ruin from now on, those pots cannot be used for ceremonially, ceremonial washing. <clears throat> I think he's underlining something. See, Jesus never does anything without, like, intention. There's meaning to it. He's basically saying this. The time for washing, the time for cleansing is over. It's time for celebrating. The time for the, for the purification and forever washing is just like forever confessing your sins, forever like beating yourself, forever getting the whip out and say, you know, like, just, whoa, like I'm an awful person, just forever being conscious of your sins and your faults. That day is over. This is the day to celebrate. This is the time to dance. This is the time to rejoice. This is the time to come boldly before the throne of grace that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is not the time to come groveling in. Those days are gone. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of us. It's all forgiven. And I, I know that like, I've, how many times do you hear people, it's just like, well, no, you've got to confess your sins every day and just like... We're supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God through Christ. We're supposed to not have a sin consciousness. 
I know that we have sin and we're, we fall short of the glory of God. I understand that, but we're supposed to consider ourselves as the righteousness of God in Christ. We're supposed to change the way we think about ourselves and, and, and you know, reach and approach God from a different uh, place, a different perspective. But now here then, and I'm going to bring the service to a close on this one because that was a good drop. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. But he tasted the water that was turned into wine and he didn't know where it came from. But it says, it says in brackets, it says, but the servants who drew the water knew. I don't know if you actually have stopped to think about that. Mary says, whatever he says to do, just do it. So they're looking at Jesus and he says, ah, good on you, Mary. Um, Go and fill those pots up with water. And if they're from the south in America, then the answer is yes, sir. So they go, they fill it with water. And what's in there? Water. And then he says, go and draw some and take it to the master of the ceremonies. And they're just like, we are so for it. You know, we're going to take to the master of ceremony a glass of water. Just like, so, so they draw some. It's not wine. Because it said in brackets, he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water, they drew water. They put water into that cup. And they're just like... We are going to be in trouble. Uh, We will blame him. You know, just like, what do you give me water for? He said to give it to you. The miracle happens as they are walking towards him. We wait for the miracle to happen and then we start walking. And it's not going to work that way. Jesus strings everybody out. In the, in the life of faith, he strings everybody out. He strung Mary out by saying to her, what's your, what's your concern to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He strings the servants out, puts some water in the pots. We're going to be in trouble if we put water in those pots. It hasn't been blessed by the priest just yet. Just fill it up with water. Okay, fill it up with water. Um, now just get a, get a really good-looking wine glass and just fill it up. And uh, take it to the MC. Oh, my goodness me, what's going to happen here? Struth. It just went red. (laughs) Like, what happened there? The MC, he doesn't know anything about it. He tastes it. He calls the bridegroom. And he's just like, I don't get you. Everybody brings the good wine out first. And then after they've had a few too many to drink, it's just then they bring out the vinegar. You know, they've... They bring out the bad stuff because it doesn't matter by then. Just like everyone's just like happy. And uh, he says, but you've done it the other way around. You have left the best stuff to last. Like, so that was like, whoa. Um, Something happened though. Verse 11. This beginning of signs... Jesus did in Cana of Galilee 
and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What happened between verse 4 and verse 11? Because in verse 4, Jesus said, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 4, my hour has not yet come. Verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. What happened between verse 4 and verse 11? Was Jesus telling a lie back here? My hour has not yet come. Was, was Jesus like being cryptic? Was he saying, my hour has not yet come. It's about 10 minutes away. <laughs> yeah, like, no. He's actually, remember Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He did not see the Father doing anything. Now, I don't know what you think about the sovereignty of God and all of that, but I've written a book on that. You know, I'm a firm ardent believer in God being sovereign and God knowing all things and here he is Jesus is not seeing the father doing anything to the point where Jesus now is seeing the father fill up the water with the pots and then taking some to the MC and turning it into wine Jesus is now like what happened between here and here and I can only see one thing Jesus found a company of people that would just do what he said would not compromise would not hesitate but would just do it did you hear me would not compromise would not hesitate but would just do it and that's what the father is looking for is a group of people that will just do what he says. Yes, sir. If that's what you want, that's what you get. I'm gonna, if that's what you want with my life, that's what you get. I'm just going to do what you say. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna hesitate. I'm not gonna put conditions on. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you if. I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna put a time schedule on this. Uh, well, let me first do this and then you know, just like, well, I know he wants me to do this and I'll, I'll go halfway. I'll meet you halfway, Lord. No, just someone who without hesitation, without compromise, will just do what God wants them to do. And I think in that you get the change from, woman, what is your concern to do with me? My hour has not yet come to this beginning of miracle, this beginning of science, Jesus did, performed in Cana of Galilee and, his, and manifested his glory and his disciples put their trust in him. There was a group of people and the reality is there was actually only one because the servants were acting under orders. There was one person who abandoned herself to doing the wild and ridiculous thing of just obeying Jesus. Obedience is better than sacrifice. 
Just do what he says and you'll never regret that. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Anna. I trust that during the service, God was moving in your heart and his presence was where you are. Just before we say goodbye today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If today's message spoke to you, or you've been considering believing in Jesus as your saviour, then I would love to invite you to do that now. Would you repeat this short prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. I ask you to forgive my sins and be my Lord and my Saviour. I open my heart to you today. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today, we would love to hear from you. We would love to celebrate with you, pray with you and help you start your Jesus journey. Visit our website, manninghamcc.org and go to the I Said Yes page. Fill out your details and one of our leaders will get in touch with you. We would love to hear your story. Hey, thanks for joining in today and being part of our service. If you enjoyed today's service, would you click the share button and subscribe to MCC so you can stay connected. We all need some good news and we would love to hear how God has spoken to you today. Visit manninghamcc.org and fill out a good news story form today. If you would love to know more how to grow in your relationship with God, then Next Steps provides the path for you. Visit manninghamcc.org to find out more. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.